There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Scaffold, a new podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the industrial designer Philippe Malouin. Born in Quebec, Philippe studied design in Montreal before pursuing further education in Paris and Eindhoven. In 2008, shortly after moving to London to work for the designer Tom Dixon, Philippe started his own practice, which is celebrating its 10th year with a retrospective show this summer at the Villa Noy in the south of France. I met with Philippe at his studio in Hackney where we talked about, among other things, the relationships between experimentation and performance in his work, the evolution of his thinking following design school, and the lineage that can often be traced from iterations through to the final objects he's created. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. suburb just outside of Montreal. Salaberry de Valleyfield. Valleyfield, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how long were you living there before you moved to Europe to study? Oh, God. Um, uh, well, you know, moved to, uh, lived in Salaberry de Valleyfield until I think I was 17. And then I was, uh, I lived in Vancouver for a little while. I was uh, s snowboarding. I was trying to be a professional snowboarder. And that fell through. <laughs> and I had to do something else. So a few years later in Montreal, I decided to uh, start industrial design school. And um, yeah, I got a grant from the Canadian government to go and study in France. And uh, I never came back. <laughs> and so why industrial design in, in Montreal? Um, why? Uh, I always made things uh, growing up. Either it was like skateboard ramps or... Um, tools or um, things for my room. Um, we had a workshop at the studio at, at my house when I was a kid. So yeah, I guess I always made things and um, I took a couple of years between um, college in Canada. We have college before university um, and, and university and I kind of traveled around and went to Europe and then saw a bunch of different people doing different things and being a product designer and a furniture designer precisely, it, I thought it was a possibility. Whereas like when you're from my hometown, didn't really, mm. never read as a career prospect, if you like. And then I kind of came back from traveling in Europe and decided to go to University of Montreal and start industrial design. And how long was that degree? How, oh, right. Well, I didn't finish it. I did two years there. And then I got a grant to go and study uh, in France. I went to Les Ateliers in Paris and then NC. And then uh, I did six months there on an exchange. 
And then I managed to get into in, uh, Design Academy Eindhoven. And then they, they kind of let me finish the last two years. Uh, so they credited my first two years at University of Montreal. And then I finished the last two years at Eindhoven. Yeah, and I, I graduated in February 2008. Okay. Yeah, and then this July is going to be the 10 years that I have a studio. Wow. I remember reading somewhere that the decision to study in Eindhoven was driven by uh, this desire to work with the former director of Droog. Or just to study under him? Yeah, yeah, I was obsessed with Drew from I think my very first uh, year as a as a before University of Montreal. I remember I did a something called a Design and Art. It was kind of like a, um, a not a directional course, how would you, a foundation course, if you like. And I discovered you know Drew, and that must have been what two thousand five. And mm -hmm. then I kind of became obsessed with like. Hello Ungarius and Teho Remy and um, kind of, yeah, and then got subsequently discovered Design Academy Eindhoven and I was interested in the type of design that was done at the time over there. But I went to a very, in, very sort of industrial design school and very technical school. And it was like, it was very interesting to see an art art house perspective to the work I was starting to do. Okay, so what does that mean exactly? Well, like, who were you studying under and how do you think your education at Eindhoven shaped the kind of work you're doing now? Um, well, I think it's a good thing because I did a technical school, which I really came to my advantage. Uh, in Eindhoven, most of the people studying there were art students. Um, they, they couldn't all a lot of them had trouble producing technical drawings or, you know, making, um, yeah, making 3D models or having things manufactured and so on. So, uh, yeah, my my training was kind of a, a best of both worlds, if you like. Uh, it was both coming from an art perspective, but also from, um, yeah, from a technical background. So it was a marriage of both. Mm. And I studied under people like um, Bertian Pot. And uh, Vicky, Vicky Summers, and uh, hmm. yeah, there are the few that come to mind immediately. And then, right from Eindhoven, you moved to London mm -hmm. and started working um, under Tom Dixon. That's right. Um, before I graduated, it was part of our curriculum to undergo uh, an internship, and I. Um, I did an internship for Tom Dixon uh, just the summer before I graduated and he was kind enough to offer me a job when I graduated and I was showing in Milan and I didn't really have a plan or I didn't know what I was going to do and I was showing my my grad show and then yeah Tom offered me a job so that was pretty cool. I want to talk a little more about that grad show because um, it definitely stuck in my mind when I first just saw coverage of it even. Um, so it featured an inflatable table, a dervish lamp inspired by car wash brushes, a transparent ballpoint stool filled with ink, um, and the, I think like and the hanger chair and the what the hanger chair and the hanger chair the infamous <coughs> excuse me oh, hanger yeah. chair yeah um, so to me though all those pieces they kind of seem already iconic in a way and they already seem like they fit. Um, within 
this larger body of work that you produced in the past 10 years, which seems like in a way this uh, approach to design was already uh, pretty well formed by the end of your education, which in a way seems quite uncommon. So I wonder like how, how did that all crystallize so early on? Well, it's funny because like some, some of the things you just mentioned are kind of cringe. Really? I'm looking at them and I don't think they, they make sense at all with okay. <laughs> my, the rest of my work with some, you know, some people could say it does. Which, I mean, make, which ones make you cringe? I don't know. It's just, it was so... <laughs> and why? Um, at, the, at the time, like everything had to kind of like be kind of crazy and it needed to transform and it needed to be dipping its foot in the art world for just, just for art's sake. And I was much younger and I really liked it. I was really lucky because obviously the, the work I produced got me a lot of attention immediately. It was kind of crazy because, you know, I showed it in Milan and, you know, uh, frame and wallpaper and whatever called me two days later and they wanted to do interviews and all that. So it was all very overwhelming. It was great. But um, it just feels today like it didn't, it was explorative work and it was really important that I did it, but it wasn't going with what we do now. We just do products mm. now that work and we we try to use the best material to do the job and uh, we think of manufacturing constraints. And, mm -hmm. uh, Maybe I was actually way off in that kind of that summary. But I feel like if there is one thing that links the early work with what you do now, it is this idea of performance, potentially. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, before we talk about that, I have a question about like art and the art world, because I know that um, you're represented by certain galleries as well as doing work for um, um, design purveyors like Hem or Roland Barrel or um, you know, 1882. Yeah, and so. On the one hand, some of the work fits into this gallery environment, yeah, yeah, and on the other, some of it is mass-produced. And so where do you draw the line between the two? How do you distinguish an art object from a design object? I think there's enough space for everybody, and you can exist as a designer in many places. I do think on, so that like, as an industrial designer, you can wear many hats because you can design a lot of things. Mm -hmm. You can design things that are... Um, wildly complicated and design things that are very simple and design things for sheerly aesthetic reasons or decide design things for uh, participative performance performance and so on so uh, I think uh, we try not to draw a line too much because a lot of times when we do things uh, as a performance or as an exploration they can become products so that everything is interlinked it might just be the beginning part of the research that becomes um, that becomes a product. So, for instance, like last year for Hem, we made uh, like 15 screens in one week with a ton of material. And then actually one of those things is currently being produced for, it's, it's coming out in May, as a product, a mass manufactured product. So I think everything is being creative, if you like, is very uh, intertwined. And you can, I'm a big proponent of... Um, I think, the, sorry, to answer your question, the things that ties all my work together is process and how we get to design things. So a lot of it comes from trial and error and trying things out, which often makes sense to perform in front of people. And a lot of those things um, sometimes can be translated into a mass manufactured product. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like this, 
iterative process, studying options, becomes a performance in and of itself. Yeah. And that that process can become um, a commodity that could maybe fit uh, as well as a performance art piece as, as it would an industrial design process. Yeah, I think um, as a designer today, it's like, you know, the, the standard model of industrial design and getting a royalty as a payment mm. is extremely outdated and really impossible. So, really? yeah, well, yeah, I mean, there there's a lot of an older generation that's able to subside from that. But my generation, there's only a handful of people that are able to make a good living from just designing products. And uh getting royalties. Why is that? Has the royalty system changed? Well, there's a lot more designers, there's a lot more products, and it's very hard to design a classic. You know, it's hard to top some, you know, an LC1 chair by the Eames. <laughs> it's really, yeah, I mean, you can't do better than that, so it's always like, it's always very difficult to create something that will have the sort of public engagement as, you know, like a lot of the mid-century modern pieces that were created a long time ago. I mean, a lot do really well at it, like the Boer-like brothers and Konstantin Gritschich and so on. Um, but, uh, you know, to be perfectly honest, like uh, that's about half of my income. The other half comes from um, doing other things. Mm -hmm. And then doing other things is very important for our survival because we need to, well, it's not just financial survival, but it's also important for our minds. Like if you're just doing things in CAD on the computer all day long, every day and making paper models and just, I don't think you'd make many discoveries. I don't think you'd discover new things. So what are those other things that you're doing now? Uh, well, it's always, not even now, that's what I've always done. So uh -huh. I, 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 work, I work with my gallery a lot at the moment, my gallery in New York, Salon 94 and then um, preparing new work for them. And then um, I do a lot of, strangely, for some reason, people ask us to do public art commissions, uh, large scale public art commissions. I don't know why, but yeah, we do these. And then we, uh, we learn to do things that we didn't know, uh, you know, like mechanical engineering and coding, and, uh, using motors and, um, you know, uh, structural resistance and, uh, and, and, and architecture, like, you know, our, our uh, or that, yeah, we get commissioned to do, yeah, pu uh, public art. So we were commissioned to design a, um, quite a large piece of work for uh, a small community outside of Stockholm. And uh, we created a, a, our first piece of architecture and it's a modular system that you repeat uh, six pieces and it creates sort of a contemporary folly if you like and it's a f brutalist folly and then um we had to learn uh yeah we we, we learned a lot about um <laughs> uh, the structural resistance of concrete and um uh, the forces that were going to be applied to it in order to make an informed decision about the design and and that strangely translated into a gallery piece, which is completely insane to me, but it did, and it did very well, and it was purchased a few times. And that's, um, you know, so you, once once again, everything is interconnected, so you, I'm, if I'm commissioned to do one thing, it'll probably end up somewhere else where mm -hmm. we never thought it would have existed. Mm -hmm. And then everything is kind of cross-pollinating, and I think that's how I managed to stay creative and have fun and make discoveries. So just the way you're describing the process of designing that bench or that public art piece, it sounds like the position you're occupying as, as a designer is as a non-expert 
in a field that's kind of foreign to you. Mm. And what's so exciting about that is that um, you will happen upon other ways of doing things that uh, the expert may not necessarily have thought of. Precisely. We're absolute amateurs. Exactly. (laughs) It's like it's an amateur practice in a way that leads to a really um, unconventional or surprising results. Yeah. And you talk a lot about like process in your work and the importance of process. We touched on it a bit already, this idea of performance. Um, But I mean, there's certain pieces that speak explicitly to the design of process versus the an interest in any outcome, any specific object in the end. Mm-hmm. And I guess one piece in particular was a ceramic uh, set that uh, was produced by pouring, there it is, pouring sugar on a turning table mm-hmm. and then casting a resin mold of that. Um, which well, that is, came from somewhere else. Where did that come from? That came from uh, an installation that we did for Loebmeyer and then we had a giant uh, spirograph that was just dropping sand on the floor. Okay, can we start there? I just want to follow this trajectory to the point where we have these bowls in front of us now. Okay, so, so the genesis yeah. of All right, I'll give you the, the whole thing, how it started and how one idea goes to another and becomes something else. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so we were asked to create um, work for a company called Lovemeyer for the Vienna Design Week. And then we had a look at uh, a lot of their products. Lobmeyer makes exquisitely thin glass and gorgeous things. And we looked at their alpha glasses um, that are uh, impossibly thin and beautiful. And uh, we decided to make um, our glasses out of them by adding a middle component, filling one end out of sand, flipping it around. And then that, um, that got us to thinking that we really liked sand passing by and then the the significance of sand had a lot to do with time passing by and the amount of time that goes into producing one of their glass obviously we're using quartz sand which is the sand that they make to make their actual products and everything they make comes from sand so that why that's why it was an important material to use and then um, then we're dropping sand on a single point and um, I thought uh, as an accident, um, the, we had a bucket of, uh, sorry, a bag of sand that was suspended from the ceiling with a hole in it, and then uh, I just I remember just um, brushing past it, and then uh, I kind of destabilized it, and it started dropping sand on the floor in a circular fashion, and then we thought that was interesting, so then <laughs> we kept doing that, and then we pushed it a little bit further by adding a disco ball motor to one end and a battery pack on the other, and then we would have two points of revolution. And that became more interesting. And then we started playing with uh, the speed of revolution and a DMX player to decide at what speed each motor will be going. And then that created different patterns and that was interesting. So, and then we decided to make a machine. Uh, that was actually um, at the Victorian Albert Museum, uh, this giant uh, spirograph sand machine. Um, and then we decided to make that with them because they made, they're, they're fantastic um, glass makers, but they're also really, really good at working with brass. So we made a giant brass sand spirograph machine. And then um, my favorite thing about this was the way that sand falls onto a single point and then it creates a curve. And the curve that creates can be designed by me or you or anyone. It's just that natural thing that happens. So when we were asked to design plates, uh, yeah, it made sense to me to just do that in a circular fashion because I remember doing that one accident by, by touching that uh, bag of sand that was spinning on its own and then it created a circle. 
and then the curve of that from the edge of that plate onto the onto the flat bit made a plate to me it was really obvious so i got a busted record player and um, single a bucket and then dropped um, sand on it and then that was hard to copy because it was made of sand so to copy it you need to use like a silicon or something like that or um, solidify solidifying rubber and then we couldn't get that out obviously so i thought of sugar because sugar you can wash it out with hot water and then yeah and then we created forms which we then copied in um, silicon and then we recopied a positive and plaster out of that negative <laughs> and we gave it to the 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 porcelain producer the 1882 and they made these lovely plates out of it huh it's such a like dizzying trajectory from the very beginning of this hourglass experiment up into uh, ending with the beautiful porcelain bowl uh, yeah. and it makes me think that like as a designer oftentimes you don't really know what will happen it's a it's a really honest process of discovery i think a lot of a lot of designers can and a lot of designers are really fantastic talented designers but i think my talent is to discover things and then it becomes interesting but i'm not very uh i'm not like those you know genius designers from the 60s italian era that just sketch something on a piece of paper and it all materializes i need to see things make things because you mentioned Castiglione in another interview yeah. I saw which to me he kind of epitomizes that type of design yeah this kind of master designer um, but very very experimental and process based at the same time really yeah I mean you look at his parentesi lights you this has to be like I, I don't know I don't know the origin of that but the parentesi light you know which is basically has a, a weight at the bottom and a d-shaped parentesi shaped steel tube that can only come from making things mm. like there's no way someone is sitting in their office and just be like i'm going to use the tensile strength of a wire and pass it through uh, a, a parenthesis shaped metal tube in order to fix its its height i mean <laughs> that would if that's the case he would he he's the br most brilliant genius in the universe but i think he probably did that process mm -hmm. idea that I'm talking about. Why then, when we hear names like Castiglione, um, we don't think of process. Is it a generational thing? Do you I, think it's kept secret because in that era of design, there was no interest in process? Or maybe they wanted to keep things more magical. I don't know. I'd say, well, I'd compare two Italian designers, for mm -hmm. instance. Gio Ponti is mm -hmm. very painterly. He's very much of an artist napkin sketcher. Like the most phenomenal, one of the most phenomenal designers of all time, Gio Ponti. Whereas I think Castiglione is very different, mm. very, very different, way more experimental and hands-on when you look at most of the products. And you can tell just by looking at the products themselves, there's something more technical about them. They're performing in their own way, I guess. I guess there are more things I understand or that could be part of my sort of, um, my my stylistic vernacular mm -hmm. that I I, yeah, I can kind of understand where they come from. Mm. Maybe, <laughs> I, I wish. Or actually, the Eames are the best example of process-based yeah. designers. Uh, they're the best example. They were absolute uh, experimenters. They, you know, the, the plinth, you know, came from 
Ray Eames, not Charles, let's be honest, uh, <laughs> women first. Uh, it is, you know, she, she invented this plinth, uh, I believe, yeah, it was second, for the Second World War vets that uh, needed the to have, yeah, yeah, they needed to have their, and then the discovery of organically curved plywood is hers. And then um, that comes from sheer experimentation. Uh, mm -hmm. and everything I mean they t they lived and touched so many disciplines I mean we mainly know them for furniture but they were they were cinematographers they were uh, choreographers they were set designers they played with light they I mean they were universally phenomenal at experimenting and I think that's that would be the number I mean it's really cliche to to name the Eames but that would be the number one practice that I would look at in order to make discoveries and sort of base my practice on. <laughs> so with the Eames in mind then, like do you have other avenues in terms of like going beyond traditional industrial design, going on the production of beautiful objects? Like are you interested in these other uh, realms that people like the Eames were just exploring? Well thankfully as I said we're constantly asked to work in these other realms so either it's public art or you know big kinetic installations or live performance or mm. you know yeah we're part of that all of these other avenues which kind of happen kind of against our will really really i'm just a product designer but all these other things happened because i like to experiment experiment and yeah hmm. so what what are you experimenting with right now is there anything that you can well, I can probably. Well, I guess another. I guess another way of framing the question is, what are you preoccupied with right now? Mm. I'm preoccupied with uh, work for my gallery in New York at the moment. I'm preoccupied with uh, <laughs> all these names, but we can't say them in the uh, the interview uh -huh. <laughs> because until they come out, uh, it's secret. Okay. Um, but I can tell you that I have um, my first retrospective show that's coming out at Villanois. I'm the. Uh, I can announce this because it's going to be announced next Friday in okay. Paris at Palais Tokyo. So I'm the uh, president of the jury at uh, Villanois for this year, which means I have a, an exhibition uh, there. And it's wow. my first uh, institution-based um, exhibition. So it's a big deal. And I'm consumed with that. And that's what Diego's working on right now. Um, we need to make a selection of what products of, you know, of the last 10 years are going in. And these are the ones uh, that are middle pinned on the wall. Mm -hmm. And um, we need to, we have a fair bit of them, but we need to acquire some that we don't have. And uh, we, are, we need to design the, the exhibition. And the exhibition is going to be called 10 years because uh, in July when the show opens, it's going to be 10 years that my studio exists. So um, we just want to talk about what we're currently talking about and kind of demystify things and show on video because we, we document everything that we do all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, either with photographs or video or anything, we always show how, what we're working on and kind of show a project and um, its process, accompanying process and show sort of uh, 10 years of studio work. <laughs> and that's only a small, um, that's uh, about half what you see on the wall there is about half what we did in the last 10 years. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's hard to choose and uh, it needs to be interesting for the public. and. Yeah. This is this is exciting because it makes me realize how much pressure there might be on a designer to become a protagonist in their own work, especially when it's in a public institution. And people are coming not only to consume 
the objects, but the, the kind of persona behind the objects. And I wonder how much of your, um, your public persona is also a design project for you. I would like to think not whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I'm the I'm the least interesting thing about my work, uh -huh. um, and I really do not like the whole superstar designer thing that was happening in previous generations. I think that's not interesting, and you know the rock star thing is. You don't want to be the next Philip Stark. No, <laughs> I mean I'd love to have his checkbook, but I think. Uh, after I think I graduated in 2008 and I was at the height of the financial crisis and I think it humbled a lot of people and I think nowadays you need to be nice and work hard in order to get ahead I don't think yeah I don't think being a rock star and having an ego will get you anywhere uh, nobody wants that I don't want to hang out with people like that mm -hmm. so um, yeah so I think people should spend more time designing them thinking what they're gonna wear or what they're perceived like mm. I mean <laughs> I wear the same thing every day and then <laughs> I don't yeah yeah you have a kind of uniform I guess yeah um, I know that you're strapped for time there are just a few more questions yeah probably more around um, I guess being being from North America and having moved to Europe to study I mean, you're, you're Canadian, you studied in France, the Netherlands, you now work in the UK. And I'm British. You recently got your UK citizenship. Yeah. So in a way, you kind of embody this idea of a global designer. Hmm. And I think your work is also like, it's abstract in a way that it could be from anywhere. Because it's about, to me, it's about material and process more than cultural reference. Hmm. Um, and so what, what do you think about this idea of regionalism and the relationship of an object to a place? And has that ever been a, a preoccupation of yours? Or do you subscribe to the idea that design is now a global uh, yeah. phenomenon and that there isn't necessarily a link to place anymore? I think they can be both. I think, you know, like a lot of design studios will use that as a formula. So for instance, like, the Canadian thing, you know, if, if I wanted to, I could do like the Canadian thing. And What is the Canadian thing? I, but the perceived Canadian thing, I could do a lot of things, for instance, it, with a chainsaw in the woods and, do, <laughs> and have a beard and da-da-da and do, do all those things and utilize my provenance for, for gain, for financial gain. Or, but I think, I think it needs to, and then or, or crafts, for instance, crafts are immediately related to their country or their, their place of provenance very much so but I think the work that I'm creating uh, is very um, um, universal I'd like to use that word but I can't even judge that that's for you to say if it is or it isn't but I'd like to think that uh, it doesn't really have a Canadian brand to it or a British brand to it I can one thing I can say about London though is that uh, London has to be the craftiest place on, on, on earth for designers because there's like a thing, there's definitely a thing about Londoners. Either it's Martino Gamper or Beth and Laura Woods or uh, most importantly, Max Lamb, the best designer. The best <laughs> designer. Uh, you know, uh, people do a lot with very little in London. Um, because we're, you know, we're a city where 
where uh, you know there isn't immediate manufacturing capacities and studio space is prime it's really hard to find the studio it's really hard to produce things it's really hard to yet there's this DIY uh, really important ethos of making in London and I was teaching at Royal College for three years and that's what I was teaching that's what I was, well, I was teaching I was a um, um, intervenant sorry French word uh, Tutor. I was a tutor, and uh, the the projects that I would give, uh, you know, uh, with my co-tutor uh, Sarah Van Gameren from Glithero, who's like all about making, and how, you know, um, is is this sort of um, can-do, do-it-yourself attitude um, that is, feels like it's very London. It's an attitude that you seem to embrace wholeheartedly when you first moved to London. I've read about your apartment in Stoke Newington. Yeah. It wasn't even an apartment, it was a warehouse with yeah. no toilet or shower, no, no running kitchen. water. It was a room with it, nothing in it. And you kind of scavenged bits and pieces to make this place livable for yourself. Yeah, I was really lucky because I moved here. I had no money, like no money. And I think uh, like, you know, my like God bless um, my dad because he uh, paid for my tuition fee and, and um, to, to, for me to subsist while I was a student in Europe and then when I graduated he was like you're on your own so uh, so I was working I think for very I can't say how much it was but for very little money per day at Nixon mm -hmm. and um, I found a, a place for 400 pounds a month and it was a room that was 5 meters by 5 meters and it had nothing in it and I took down the ceiling I had this awful suspended foam ceiling and then I built a second floor from wood that I could scavenge at nighttime because they were demolishing a building across the street and I would go and scavenge all this stuff and then <laughs> like haul it back to the second floor of this like warehouse in Stoke Newington and then uh, everything from a shower pan to like uh, a stove oven to chairs to like all these this building had just been bulldozered and then there was all this all this clout, all this like you know loot, uh -huh. all over the place that I could go and get at night because I literally I, I was really poor. I was so poor. Uh, I think I was surviving London on under ten grand a year, mm. and uh, <laughs> and then but it, it all worked out and it was done in such a sort of ad hoc fashion that it became a really nice place. And Casa da Bitare yeah gave it like five pages because huh. it was like so weird and and DIY and. Yeah, and then so yeah, I guess I do embrace that way of just just do it yourself. Although nowadays it's really hard to find places like that. Every single square inch of London's been explored and <laughs> and made profit of. And it's so hard. Like my students at RCA, they have such a harder time than I did when I got here. Mm. You mentioned that students now, upon graduating, can't really afford to start up in London anymore. They're moving to places like Glasgow or Lisbon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, like, do you feel, having had a practice for over, for almost a decade now, yeah. do you feel like you're of a different generation? Oh yeah, definitely. And, like, where do you see your practice going or do you ever see it moving to a different place? Um, I would see it moving to a different place for strictly personal reasons. I mean, I'd like to go surfing and mm -hmm have a dog you know that would be really and have like a house and a garden and you know all those things that we all strive to have um having a studio 
in London is really nice on the other hand because I get absorbed into phenomenal culture. It's this is the is the artistic central center of the world. There's there isn't a better place for art galleries and museums that I can think of. Mm. And um and music and and dance and every single art form you can think of. So it's a, it's very nice to be a sponge here. But if I could live between here and a place with an ocean and a mountain, I'd be really happy. And yeah, maybe it's possible. We'll see. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, some designers, some designers do when they make enough money. <laughs> Where do you see your practice going in the next ten years? Um, we're really lucky because um, there's more big design companies that are coming to see us nowadays. Um, and and I never thought they would ever call us. I never thought anyone would ever call me. And um, hopefully we get to make interesting products that are not just stylistically different, but provide a different experience for for the public to consume. That's what I where I'd like it to go. Maybe that's good. Yeah. Thanks cool. a lot. No, thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. The show is produced by me, Matthew Blunderfield, and the theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Philippe Malloran, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.